welcome to another episode of the Faith in Action podcast brought to you by Christian Union at Penn. I am your host, Caleb Watt, here with my amazing co-host, Tommy Cohn. Tommy, you're the best. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing good, Caleb. How are you? I'm doing great. Because we're on part two of Nick Nowak's winter retreat talk. Um, wow. Wow, was this a good talk. Tommy, yeah. you want to tell me about this? Yeah, this one is really good. So this one, he kind of elaborates on what he talked about before which is how exactly is our flesh and our body fighting against our spirit and what that kind of looks like. Right. And like a lot of the things he talks about are like how, what pushes us away from God and what pushes us towards sin as well. And there are one of, one of the key passages that he it refers to in Romans seven, this idea of like, I want to do the right thing. I have a spirit and a heart to, that wants to do the right thing. But with my flesh and with my fallen body, essentially, I find that I constantly do the wrong thing. And yeah. just elaborating on struggle in yeah. that. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the most uplifting talk, but this is why you got to listen to the rest of them. Because yeah. while this one doesn't paint the most optimistic picture, it is elaborated on and completed in the later talks. Right. And at the very least, this puts a lot of like words to a lot of things that I felt like I felt. Yes. I yes. feel daily, right, um, in the Christian life. And yeah, just an underst- better understanding of what Christian life looks like. So, without further ado, Nick Nowak. The early morning Saturday morning talk, always the best one. You guys are super ready for this, I'm sure. I'm sure you got nine hours of sleep last night. Woke up this morning ready to go. All right. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans, and like yesterday, I'm going to give you a handout. Let me give that to a couple of you to just kind of pass around, and I might give you another handout later. We'll see. All right. So on the handout that is coming around is really on the first half, um, a number of texts from Romans, although... For various reasons, I also encourage you to just have Romans open, whether on your phone, in an actual hard copy of the Bible, looking on with a neighbor. And, uh, and if you remember last night, there's three things we're looking at this weekend. The gap in our lives, the tension that causes that gap, and then tonight and tomorrow morning, we'll look at kind of the last and ultimately the most important, which is strategies for responding to the gap and to the tension. Last night, we looked at the gap. I talked a bit about practices. This morning is going to be maybe the most intense one in, a, in identifying the problem, but it really is this diagnosis so that we can get to the treatment tonight and tomorrow. Um, and I think this will also be, at the very least, I hope, interesting, because I think I'm going to go in some directions that might be new for you, even if you've been a Christian for a while. Um, and I want to basically just talk about where the tension in the Christian life comes from, this constant experience of desiring to do something, to honor God or to love your neighbor, and yet this tug of war of feeling like you end up not doing it or not doing it as fully as you want to, and just kind of feeling torn existentially, experientially, where does that come from? And so let me pray to open us up, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in. Father, thanks for the chance to gather together, um, to wake up this morning um, with bodies um, alive, with breath in our lungs, um, with the chance to gather together, to sing, to pray, to fellowship, 
And as we consider your word again this morning for a few minutes, um, I pray that you would help us to, to understand the not yet in our lives, the tension, the conflict, even, even the war that rages every day for each one of us as followers of Jesus. That you would help us to know where that conflict comes from, where it doesn't come from, and, and especially as the weekend goes on, that we would have a better sense of how we should wage war, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, by walking in faith, and that those wouldn't just be abstract formulas, but we would have a real sense of what that looks like. Um, and so I pray that you would speak through these words. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and, and I pray that this would um, yeah, ultimately give us more clarity and motivation on what it means to be followers of Jesus, to be created and recreated in your image, and, and we pray that you would be honored in our midst this morning. And we ask all of that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, historically Christians, and I'll bet a lot of you have heard this, historically Christians have kind of identified a trio of bad guys in the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I bet a lot of you have heard it put that way, and I actually think that's really accurate. That's right there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It's all over 1 John. I don't know if this is what the gospel writers are saying, but historically, many Christian interpreters think that the three temptations of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, when Satan takes him up on the mountaintop, the temple, um, tells him to turn stones into bread, all that, that that's basically appealing to Jesus's flesh. You're hungry, Turn it into some bread. Um, the world, throw yourself down from the temple. Angels will miraculously save you, and you'll be really popular in the crowd's eyes. So that's kind of the world. And then, of course, the devil, bow down to me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms and the nations of the world. But whatever it is, it does seem like this is a good summary overall that we live in a world that is structured and opposed to God's purposes. I often use this image with students that, that in Galatians 1, it's, it's not as, I think, familiar a phrase to us as it should be, but Paul says at the very beginning of Galatians that the purpose of Jesus' life and death and resurrection was to deliver us from this present evil age. And that's not because like we live when Donald Trump is president, although maybe that reminds us a little more, but it's true all the time from Genesis 3 onward in human's history, that we live in a present evil age. Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite writers, she was a Catholic novelist and short story writer in the South um, in the mid-20th century. And in a letter, she says to a friend that central to the Christian life is to push back on the age as much as it pushes on you. And so the image I often use with students is what it means practically that we live in a world that's fallen, that's structured against God's purposes, is regardless of who you are, regardless of what your intentions are, every morning you wake up for the rest of your life, if you just do nothing, it's like the treadmill's already on going backwards. And just to do nothing is already to be going in the wrong direction. Not because of anything inside of you, although that, as we'll see, that's also true, but just because you live in a society, you live in a world where everything is bent away from the love of God and the love of neighbor. And even when we talk about loving God or loving neighbor, it's actually not really that, but it's just a way of just gratifying ourselves. And so we live in the present evil age. I'm not going to talk about the devil or Satan this weekend, um, but... That's there too. I do think in general on this trio, it's helpful to think about it this way. When you feel temptation, when you feel the conflict and the tension in your life, here's one thing you shouldn't do. Try to parse out those moments and say, hey, on, on Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. when I was really struggling, that one was the devil. 
And on Wednesday at 8 p.m. when I was struggling, that one was the world. And on Saturday at 9 p.m., that was just my flesh. (laughs) Don't parse it out. All three of them are coordinated at you all the time. Every moment of your life, these three realities are coming together to move you in the wrong direction that God has created and redeemed you for. But what I want to talk about the most this morning, and then to get back into tonight and tomorrow with a strategy for it, is to talk about the flesh, to talk about the flesh. I'll bet that this is a word that, uh, that you're familiar with. It's one of those kind of old Christian words. It kind of sounds like somebody who's like more puritanical might use this. Maybe somebody who reads the King James Version a lot and uses old Christian language. But the flesh is a good biblical word. And one of the things we're going to do this morning is talk about, um, there's a word in Greek for body. It's soma, which is where you get somatic from. And there's a word for flesh, which is sarks. By the way, as somebody who knows nothing, science was always the class that bored me the most growing up. And, and I know nothing really about these fields, but, but working with med school students the last three or four years has been fun because all of our medical terminology today, it, it comes from Greek. And so it's just fun seeing my grad students do this. It's one of the few things you learn in seminary that, uh, that other people don't get to know. And so sarks is the word for flesh. And one of the real questions in the Bible is, is body and flesh, soma and sarks, are those the same things? Are those completely different things? Or, as I'm going to argue, are they two ways of looking at the same reality, but from different perspectives? And that's what I think it is. Some people, and and if you read the NIV, which is a great translation, not going to criticize it at all, or other ones, sarks, the word for flesh, will often be translated as sinful nature. And that's 100% a mistake every single time. It never means sinful nature. Sarks never refers to sinful nature. In fact, if you're in Romans, turn to chapter 1. Throughout Romans, throughout Galatians, throughout the New Testament, Paul often describes the tension, the conflict that we experience as Christians as a war between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit and the flesh are waging war, and both of them want to claim you for their lordship, for their territory. And yet in Romans 1, in the first paragraph of Romans 1, the first four verses, Paul identifies himself as an apostle who's been called by God and sent to the nations, to the Gentiles, to proclaim the gospel. And the gospel is about God's son, Jesus. And who's Jesus? And right away, Paul tells us two things about Jesus, that he came from the line of David according to the flesh and that he was appointed the son of God in power through the spirit through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus experienced both the flesh and the spirit. And just to back up, it doesn't mean that according to the sinful nature, Jesus came from the line of David. This means that according to physical human realities, his ancestors physically were the line of David. That's all it means. Flesh is always a reference to your body. It is always a reference to our humanity, our creatureliness. But in general, I would say this, body, when the New Testament or the Bible talks about it, is more aiming at the goodness of being a created being. Body is usually a positive reference in general in the New Testament that it's something God created you with, It's something that he will give you again in the resurrection from the dead in the future. It is something that that in part reflects his image. And so for for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, the longest discussion of resurrection in the Bible, Paul can say on the one hand that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And on the other hand, say, you will be raised bodily from the dead. So flesh always has a negative implication that body does not. But nonetheless, and, and, and I'll try to show this to you as we work through Romans in the next few minutes, flesh is, in a nutshell, your body in its fallenness, in its weakness, in its corruptibility, in the fact that it has been compromised by what has happened in the world. So flesh is always a reference to your body, but it's a reference to what has gone wrong with our bodies. And so before I jump into these passages in Romans, let me give two disclaimers. And, and I think one will be even more important than the other. I'm gonna say some pretty negative things about our bodies this morning. And before I do that, I want you to hear a couple of things. First, the fundamental affirmation that Christianity makes about bodies is that they are good. Is that it is good. You should be glad that you have a body. You should be glad that you don't experience the world as a disembodied soul. You should be glad that you eat. You, mentioned in your testimony that you love food. You should love tasting food. You should love smelling smells. You should love that you get to see the world. You should, you should love touch. You should love getting to walk around and travel in a physical world. These are created by God and they're good. And so the first and the main thing Christians say about the body is that it is good. Second, and, and if you've ever read or heard N.T. Wright speak, he especially, I think, emphasizes this well. Many Christians, kind of co-opted by kind of paganism and philosophy in our culture over years, think that the destiny in the future and the hope of Christians is for our souls to float away from our bodies to heaven. And that is not a Christian worldview. You are not going to go to heaven as a soul in the future. You're body is going to be raised from the dead and God is going to recreate a physical world. Christians do not hope for the immortality of the soul. They hope, as the earliest creed says, the Apostles' Creed, for the resurrection of the body in the life of the world to come. Heaven is not where you go forever. Heaven is a resting place before Jesus comes back if you die. But Revelation 21, 22, heaven comes down to earth and dead bodies get out of graves. You're gonna have a body forever and you are gonna be in a physical world forever. And so when I say some negative things about the body this morning, don't hear me as denying either of those things. And then third, and very practically, is it's probably always true in a fallen world um, as part of our fallenness, but especially our culture, which is so superficial and so vain and so obsessed with certain understandings of beauty and so hypersexualized is whether you're a woman or a man, whatever race you are, however tall or short you are, whatever your body shape is, I'll bet that like me, many of you have a difficult time looking in the mirror and liking what you see. And when I say negative things about the body, that is not what I mean. There is no sense that you should look in the mirror and be like, I wish I didn't look like this, or I wish I didn't feel like this, or I wish I was a different shape or a different size or a different skin color. That's understandable that we struggle with that, but that is to be overcome and to be actually accepted with gratitude. In the world to come, it will be a world of many colors, a world of many eye shapes, a world of many heights and, and weights and, and, and diversity, and those things are good. That's not what's wrong with our bodies. And so I just want to make those disclaimers so you don't hear that when I critique something about how we experience our bodies, that's not what I mean. You should be glad that you have a body, you should be glad that you have your body and not somebody else's body, and you should be glad that you're gonna have a body forever. And I think we need to do that more as Christians to talk about that. The second disclaimer, real quick, and this is really only for those of you who are kind of nerdy like me and maybe philosophically oriented, this is not just unique to Christians. 
any worldview and any ideology struggles with this, which is just how you resolve anthropology with respect to kind of dualism. Are we, do we have bodies and souls? Do we have just bodies that have consciousness? Do we have bodies and souls and spirits? And those are perpetual dilemmas, and I have no idea how to solve them. I don't know what the answer is. I am deeply agnostic on those questions. I don't think you have to be committed to a certain understanding as a Christian. And so I'm going to use body and soul at times this morning. I'm going to use body and spirit or body and heart. And don't hear me as making, if you are philosophically inclined, don't hear me as making strong metaphysical claims. Just hear me as phenomenologically describing the way we experience the world, which is you are your body, but you also have like consciousness of your body. So there's something more than just your body in your experience of yourself. However you break that down metaphysically, I have no idea, doesn't matter, especially for now. But when I make these claims, just hear that, that there is, and, and so for instance, we'll, we'll look at this here now in Romans, very powerfully, very memorably, and, and I'm gonna end with this in a few minutes and, and tell you what this has meant for me in my own life. In 2 Corinthians 4, which you don't need to turn there, although it is on the back of your handout, there's some other text there, Paul says, pretty interestingly, he sums up his experience as a Christian. If you have that 2 Corinthians text on the back of your handout, I think it's the last line on there. He sums up his experience as a Christian by saying, so our outer person is wasting away day after day, but our inner person is being renewed day after day. That I think is aligned with spirit and flesh, inner person and outer person, body and soul or body and heart, or what in other places New Testament writers called the old person and the new person. That there is this disjunction in our experience of something on the inside that has already been raised from the dead and transformed, housed in something old that is still decaying and dying. Really practical way to put this. And I don't know, because you guys are young. Some of you, I'm sure, have already struggled with some serious health issues, but many of you probably experience your bodies in pretty enjoyable ways as 20-year-olds. Um, and again, I'll, I'll be the cranky old guy. Just wait, just give it a few decades. You'll start feeling, if you haven't yet, the weight of knowing that every day and every year and every decade, things fall apart. And that process does not reverse. Process does not reverse. And, and as you get older, you begin to wonder, like, why does being a Christian make no difference to this? And here's the thing, it makes no difference to that. If you line up 100 Christians over here, and you line up 100 non-Christians over here, the cancer rate will be exactly the same between the two groups. The rate of going bald will be exactly the same rate in the two groups. If any of you are like, man, Nick, look at this. He's been doing great in faith. Tucker, man, come on, step it up. Step it up. Let's, let's exercise some faith. Right? That's not, that is not the explanation of these things. And even if you, as, as some Christians do, yeah, but, but like, like Jesus heals people and the apostles heal people, that should happen today. That, that's a complicated discussion for sure. But one of the things we should always remind ourselves is that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he died again. Every person who was blind that Jesus opened up their eyes, a couple of decades later, cataracts formed and they went blind again. Every time someone is healed, it is a temporary reprieve that's a sign of something else. It does not stop this dynamic at all, which is that the gospel makes absolutely no impact on your body at all as a Christian. 
What was gonna happen to your body, even apart from Christ, is still 100% in motion in your life. And there is 100% a not yet over that part of your life. And that is where a big part of the tension comes from. So let's look at the story of the body in Romans. It's on your handout. You can also be looking at these passages if you want. Let's start in Romans 1. I think I have on this handout every reference to the body in Romans. And again, sophomores and juniors, you'll be studying this this semester. So hopefully this will give you some, uh, some things to be looking for. In Romans 1 through 3, many of you probably remember that Paul diagnoses the plight, the problem, that we've sinned, we're idolaters, we turn away from God, we find ourselves under God's judgment, darkened. And in Romans 1, 24 and 25, this is what it says, therefore, having turned away from God to idolatry, therefore God gave human beings up in the lusts of their heart to impurity to do this, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they had already exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. This is what we'll do tonight, especially. We'll see that when we get to Romans 12, one and two again tonight, that's the reversal of this. Human beings turning away from God and the first sign for Paul is we begin using our bodies in dishonorable and shameful ways. Romans 12, you turn back to God in Christ, and the first thing is you begin offering up your bodies to serve the Lord and love your neighbor again. Romans 1 identifies the body as central to what the human plight is, that our bodies become, not in and of themselves, but in their use, in their orientation, aimed at dishonorable, shameful things. Romans 4, a couple chapters later, as Paul turns the corner and he begins talking about the gospel, he, in Romans 4, highlights the first person in redemptive history who experiences the reversal of what went wrong. In Genesis 1 through 3, in Romans 1 through 3, which is Abraham. Abraham is the father of the people of God. He's the first person who turns to God in faith, in, in, in a true sense. Um, and so he's always seen as the origin. And notice how Abraham's experience is described in Romans 4. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead. And this is literal for Abraham, but for us it's also a metaphor that what's true of Abraham here is true of all of us. That on the one hand, and I'm sure you remember the context, God made Abraham and Sarah a promise that one day, Abraham, you're gonna look at your great-great-great-grandkids and you're not even gonna be able to count them because there's gonna be more of them than the stars in the heaven, more of them than the sand on the sea. And Abraham and Sarah are 100 years old and they don't have a single kid. And that's a metaphor for Paul of what the Christian life is, which is either God shows up and does resurrection or there's no hope. And so Abraham looks at his body, which is dead, and he looks at Sarah's womb, which is not able to bear children at that age, and yet no unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, the opposite of what sinful humanity does in Romans 1 through 3, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Now, Abraham's presented positively there, and rightly so, but notice that Abraham's body was going this direction and his faith was going this direction. In every moment of your life, that's what you are as a Christian. Your body's going this direction, but faith and glory to God is going this direction, and there is this tension between the life of faith and the deadness of our bodies. Jump ahead to Romans 3. I 
failed to put this one on your handout, and when I'm done in a few minutes, I think this is what we're, we're going to sing a song that I, I mentioned to Tucker, and, and then I think he gave it to the worship team, then maybe we'll even sing it a few times this weekend. It's an old hymn, and I love singing this hymn, but I especially love singing this hymn in light of this theme and in light of this passage in Romans 3. So look at Romans 3. Very, very famous, very familiar. Paul summarizes everything that's gone wrong in Romans 1 through 3 in verses 9 through 20, and, and you can probably see it if you have it in your Bibles, that he just piles up Old Testament quotation after Old Testament quotation. And this is where Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one does good. No one seeks after God. We have all turned aside. The first half of this litany in verses 10 through 12 makes this claim, all of us have turned away. Now, as you keep reading in verses 13 through 18, you might think that Paul is just reiterating the same point, that we're all broken, but he's not. He's saying something else. And I want you to listen to the description. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What he's saying is not only has every one of us turned away, every part of every one of us has turned in the wrong direction. Every member of our bodies is turned backwards. And this is what Paul in Romans is often missed, but throughout Romans, Paul's gonna mention that we have bodies, but that we have members of our bodies that we should offer to God in service. This is what he means. He means that you don't just have a body, but you have hands and you have eyes and you have feet. And the starting point in a fallen world is that every member of your body is being used for the wrong things. And we're gonna sing a song afterwards, Take My Life and Let It Be. And one of the things I love about this song is that it works through the different parts of our body. It says, take my lips, take my hands, take my feet, and it offers them back to God. And this is what the Christian life is. Jump ahead to Romans 6. I remember very vividly, and this is where we'll spend really the rest of our time, Romans 6 through 8. I remember very vividly as an introvert in college, as someone who had grown up outside of the church, and so there's just, a, not, not that there isn't in everybody's life, but just a, a real obvious pervasive brokenness and darkness in my life when I became a Christian, and I didn't know the Bible very well, and I was trying to grapple with how do I have this new hope and this new excitement in my life, and yet there is so much darkness that is still there in my life. And I just remember, and, and some of you might be there right now, I remember being constantly overwhelmed at the dissonance of feeling hope and excitement that there was now purpose and joy in my life and being overwhelmed at how broken I was on the inside. And I remember pouring over Romans 6, 7, and 8 and trying to get my mind around what exactly is Paul saying about the Christian life. Because if you've ever read these three chapters, not only are they clearly connected to each other, but they sound really contradictory if you read them in a row. Romans 6 and Romans 8 make some fantastically triumphant statements. Romans 7 sounds incredibly pessimistic. And so I remember reading these chapters being like, what exactly is Paul telling me is the normal Christian life? We'll get to some of that a bit tonight as well, but for now, I want you to notice that the role of the body is central in these chapters. So on the handout, Romans 6, 6 through 8, we know that our old self, that is who you, we were born as apart from Christ, enslaved to sin, all of that, 
Romans 1 through 3, we know that who we used to be, our old self, was past tense crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that his power might be defeated. Notice how Paul refers to your body there. It's not just the body, but it's the body of sin. It's the body in which sin has infected it. It's gotten inside of our bodies, you could almost say, and it's taken over each member of our body. And Christ died and called us to die with him so that our bodies might no longer be the residency of sin so that our members would no longer be dominated by the power of sin. The body is the locus of where sin is at for Paul. Not because it's the body, but because it's the the sphere in which our agency is activated, by which we intend things, by which we act in the world. Now, if we have died with Christ, that last sentence, we believe that we will also live with him. Notice we've already died with Christ, but we have not yet experienced something else to live with him that's still future. A few verses later, the next passage, Romans 6, 12 through 14, here's the first command in Romans 6. Therefore, Christians, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And that literally is what it sounds like, your body, which is falling apart and on the way to death, because it still is mortal. You are not yet immortal. Your body is not yet glorified. Your body, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, and as you already know through your biology classes, every single day is decaying a little more. And in the midst of this body, which continues to decay, don't let sin reign there, Christians, which assumes that if you don't do anything, it will keep reigning there. Do not present your members, your mouths, your hands, your feet, your eyes, to sin anymore as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves, your bodies to God as those who have already been brought from death to life and the members of your body to God as instruments for righteousness because sin will not have dominion over you. Notice how focused Paul is, not on your mind, not on your heart, not on your will, but on your body. The body is the locus of the battle. The body is the locus of the struggle and of the tension. In Romans 7, which we'll look at a little more tonight, and and if you're doing Romans this semester in the Bible course manual, there'll be more on this, just understanding what exactly this passage is saying. But notice that Paul says, so I find it to be, it's kind of the conclusion of this chapter, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Because I delight in the law of God in my inner person, this inner reality that's already alive to God. And when I see what God commands, I not only say I should do that, I say, oh, if if, if we did that, if I did that, that would be the good life. Like, I agree that that's beautiful. But I see in the members of my body another law, contrary to the law of my mind, which affirms theologically, affirms emotionally that this is what I want, And I see another law in the members of my body going 100% in the other direction, waging war against the law of my mind. That itself is a good reminder, as I said last night, that information does not lead to transformation. That theology does not automatically lead to doxology. That thinking the right things, even desiring the right things, does not itself 
win the battle in the Christian life. So I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so this is the prayer. And in many ways, I hope that part of what happens today and this weekend is, is for there to be in the midst of your frustration that you experience, that, that I don't know about, but we all share this basic tension, this basic frustration, that you would be able to articulate more and more, both clearly and concretely, but also in a heartfelt way, this prayer, O oh Lord, wretched man, wretched human being that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the prayer. That's the problem. That's what we need. Our bodies, which are the locus of sin and which are still headed for death, we need to be delivered from them, which, as we go to this next passage, Romans 8, just to jump ahead a bit before I come back, this is why Romans 8 looks to the future. And as it says, that the normal Christian life in the present, and I know this is not what you want to hear, but it will be true for the rest of your life, is groaning. Every day for the rest of your life, you will groan. Every day for the rest of your life, you'll have a sense of this is what I want my life to be and here's how I fall short and you will groan. And there is nothing I can give you this weekend. There is no formula you can discover in the future. There is no experience you can have if you pray enough or pursue God enough to overcome this groaning. You will groan until the day we die or until Christ comes back. But what is the groaning aimed at? Jump down one to Romans 8, 23. Not only, Paul says, is the creation itself in its agony, in its fallenness, groaning, but we Christians ourselves, who on the one hand already have the first fruits of the Spirit indwelling us, but nonetheless, that Spirit is in fallen bodies of sin and death. We groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, which will be the redemption of our bodies. There's a really simple way to put this, and, and I encourage you to begin articulating it, articulating it to yourself like this in the future. When you get up in the morning and you want your day to look like this, and then as every hour goes by, you realize that you're falling short, that you're not doing it quite the way you wanted to, I would love for you to be able to articulate this. What you need more than anything else is a new body. What you need more than anything else is a body that is glorified, a body that is constituted by God's beauty, God's presence, God's glory. And, and it's almost, I would say maybe not even almost, it, it basically is unimaginable right now. Imagine if you woke up this morning and every instinct and desire your body had was for nothing but glorifying God and pursuing the good of your neighbors. I can't even imagine walking around with a body like that, but that's what I need more than anything else. What constantly puts me in other directions is my mind, my heart, my will. They've already been raised from the dead in Christ and they, they long for those things but they are housed in a body that constantly makes me groan. And by groaning, I don't just mean the, like I have aches and pains in my knees and in my head and stuff like that. I do. But I mean, in the sense that my body is taking me in a different direction than the mind, the heart, the will that the spirit has already given new life to. And so Romans 8, 3 through 13, I won't read all of it, but you can just see in bold flesh, sin, body. This is where it all comes together. But with its spirit, on the one hand, a reminder at the beginning that the gospel is this. God has done in Christ and through the Spirit what the law, weakened by the flesh, that is our fallen bodies, our fallen instincts, could not do. 
by sending his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of the flesh of sin. And I don't know if you've ever slowed down and thought about that. There's actually a huge debate throughout church history about this statement, that Jesus not only was sent in the likeness of flesh, but that he was sent in the likeness of the flesh of sin. And I think part of what that means, part of why we can take encouragement from Jesus, I'll bet some of you, and and I don't want to belabor this point, but just to say it, because this is so important to know who Jesus is, and to actually, as the book of Hebrews says, know that he can sympathize with you in your weakness and temptation. I'll bet a lot of you read the Gospels and implicitly, you think, man, that must have been so easy for Jesus, because he's God. Like, yeah, you know, like Satan held out the stones and he was hungry, but he was God, so that wasn't real. I think Jesus experienced literally every temptation you experience. I think he experienced a mind, a heart, a will that was alive to God, but a body that was going in the wrong direction. I think Jesus experienced every single moment of his life, the inner conflict between what he wanted and what he should be and what his body took him towards And that reminds us both that he has been faithful where we are not, and therefore we can have grace from God, but it also reminds us that he understands and that it's possible, filled with his spirit, to not just continuing to repeat this pattern. And then it just goes on, and it summarizes in Romans 8, the issue is this. Even though we are still in bodies, we have been filled with God's spirit, and so the central issue is this. And, And of course, tonight and tomorrow, we'll talk about what does this mean tangibly, is every moment filled with God's spirit in our inner person, our hearts already revived, our minds already renewed, our wills already transformed. And we'll see this, that in there, this is an abstract way to put it, but an important way. If you are a Christian, you have already been raised from the dead and you are waiting to be raised from the dead. Both of those things are true at the same time. Your inner person has already gotten up out of the grave. Who you really are, the deepest recesses of your being, is not who you were born into this world as. When I was baptized, after I became a Christian when I was 19 years old, what that meant and what that sin was is that the Nick Nowak who was born into this world under the slavery of sin, alienated from God and other people, died with Christ that day and is never getting out of the grave again. In a new Nick Nowak, redeemed in Christ, got up out of the grave but that new Nick Nowak is still in the old body and that body is still waiting to be raised and that's where the tension comes from, that we are simultaneously alive and dead at the same time. We have already been raised. For non-Christians, the New Testament says they are just dead in their trespasses and sins. That's the whole story. You are no longer dead to God. You are no longer enslaved to sin but you are still in a body that desires to keep going that same direction. And so the million dollar question, as Paul says here in Romans 8, is do you walk according to the flesh or do you walk according to the spirit? And sometimes we think that that's really mystical, that it's really complicated. All it means is this, every day you wake up and as a Christian, the spirit of God is at work in your life. And you have, I'm guessing, because I think you're all Christians. I don't think that anybody should walk out of this weekend being like, you know what this really meant? It means I'm probably not even really a Christian. Then it's almost always a wrong turn. No matter how long you've been struggling, no matter how much doubt you feel, I think that's the wrong direction to go. Instead is to say, even though I might not feel this right now, as a follower of Jesus, I've been giving God's spirit, which is why you might not always want to do the right thing, but as a Christian, you want to want to do the right thing. 
And that's always true for you. And that is often not true for non-Christians at all. And insofar as it is, it, it's, it's cultural. Like there's some virtue that's out there that they perceive. But for you guys, like it really is true that at the deepest level, you have already been raised from the dead. And there are desires that are there. There are instincts. There's, there's a way of life that the spirit has produced. And yet it is in the midst of a body that continues to be as stupid and frustrated and broken by sin as it ever was. And every day in the midst of that reality, the million dollar question is, which one do you choose to side with? And so here is maybe the most discouraging thing I'm going to tell you all weekend, but it sets up where we're going, which is there will never come a moment in your life, no matter how much you grow, no matter how much spiritual transformation you experience, no matter how much like Jesus through the power of the spirit you become, there will never be a moment in your life before death, before Christ comes back, where you won't need to vigilantly 24-7 say no to what your body wants. You will have to say no to what your body wants every moment for the rest of your life. Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, I die every day. That's what Jesus says. Every day you must take up your cross and follow him. And that's what's so exhausting about the Christian life. That's what's so hard about it. We, especially in our culture, where we're encouraged to think that we can have it all right now, you just want to wake up and be wholeheartedly doing what you want. And if you ever do that, you will be going in the wrong direction because you will never be unilaterally oriented in the right direction as a starting point. Part of your daily life is choosing to say no to the body's desires. And by that, I don't mean sex. I don't mean food. I mean the inordinate desires. Uh, the fact that, again, it, when I want sex, when I want food, when I want this, when I want that, when I'm angry, when I'm cranky, when I'm excited, and, and, but channel that by tearing somebody else down by making a joke about them behind their back, What's wrong in those moments, even though it gets misdirected, is not that the experience itself, the desire itself is bad. What's wrong is that, and I alluded to this last night, it presents itself to me as the most important thing in the entire universe. And it bids me say, run after this and fill this craving. Run after this and experience this. And at that moment, the Christian life is, among other things, a long, relentless commitment to say, no. No, no, and it's really hard to do that. This is why, and, and Jackson asked a great question last night, this is why fasting, in part, is central to the Christian life. Fasting doesn't give you more brownie points with God. It doesn't move more angels across an invisible chessboard in heaven. It does this. It makes you the kind of person who is able to say no to what they want in other situations. And if you never fast, kind of like somebody who never jogs and says, I'm just going to wake up on March 31st, I'm going to run the New York City Marathon, but you're sitting on the couch smoking a cigarette and eating a bag of potato chips, doesn't matter what your mind, your heart, or your will intend, if you are not training your body, you're not going to run the marathon on that day. And in the same way, we fast in part so that in all the other areas of life where our bodies say, do this, and you're like, no, that's not what God wants, it's not what my neighbor needs, that we're the kind of people who are trained in saying no to what our bodies want. There's a really famous scene in military history, and I'll share this lightly because it random, not at all the point this weekend. I'm a pacifist, so I'm not a big fan of when people kind of, whether in movies or stories, kind of use war illustrations to, to illustrate virtue. But this is a particularly good one. This is a particularly good one. When Napoleon was taking over Europe at his heyday, 
And the British Empire finally and surprisingly turned him back at Waterloo, which at the, at the time was shocking. I forget what his name is, but one of the high-ranking British generals said something that's often quoted by ethicists um, who are kind of into virtue ethics, which a lot of this this weekend is. And he said, the, the Battle of Waterloo wasn't won at Waterloo. It was won on the fields of Eton. And what he meant by that, E-T-O-N, what he meant by that is that's where we train the soldiers every day. And the instincts were formed that when this happens, you don't run away even though you're scared. And when this happens, you don't abandon your comrade even though you might save your life. That we did that day after day, week after week, year after year. And then when the battle came, all we had to do was just be us. All we had to do was just be us. Why we fast, why we do spiritual disciplines is in part to get us ready to say no to our body and yes to God and our neighbor in the million decisions we have in situations every day. And so Romans 8, like Galatians and like the rest of the New Testament, describes it as walk according to the spirit. That is say no to what your body wants, but just develop, give into, um, nurture, form these desires that your inner person has in spite of the fact that your body's taking you that way. And so Christian writers historically tend to say that there are always two, there's always a two-step rhythm in the Christian life, putting to death or putting off and putting on or becoming. And this is in every moment of every day, there's a saying no, but what we're saying no to is the instincts, the passions, the desires of our body, which present themselves to us, even when they're neutral, even when they're good, as the central concern in the universe, in spite of God, in spite of our neighbor, to say no to that, and then to look at the fruit of the spirit, to look at the story of Jesus, to say yes to that, and to do it. And let me say something encouraging before I end here in the next couple of minutes, because tonight we really get into the strategy, how you do this. Like training as an athlete, which I'll bet all of you to some degree or another have done that. Like training to learn a musical instrument, which I'll bet a lot of you have done that. Like anything that's like, like learning a skill for a vocation, the million dollar temptation is that in the first day, in the first week, in the first month, you can't see any results. All you see and all you feel is frustration. But if you've ever learned to play the piano or the violin, I'll bet that four years in, you were glad that your mom or your dad made you take lessons. If you ever got to the point where you could run a half marathon and every day you're just feeling energy and focus and a lack of brain fog and, and just healthy and good about yourself, I'll bet you're glad that even though you wanted to die the first 76 times you went for a run, that you did it. And here's what I mean. If you get in habits, not in your mind, not in your heart, not in your will, but in what you do with your body every day, to say no to your body's desires and yes to the spirit, momentum builds. It will not be as hard two weeks in. It will not be as hard two months in. It will not be as hard two years. Now, like anything else, learning an instrument, getting ready for run, is taking a month off can reverse a year of training. And so you always need to be vigilant not to let up, but nonetheless, momentum builds as your Christian life goes on. I have, as a guy who works with you know, young guys in college and in grad school, I have had countless conversations over the years, and, and just to throw it out there, you guys are all aware of this, ladies and guys, um, that young guys struggling with, I do this, I do this, I believe this, but I'm just hooked on porn just hooked on porn and I can't beat it. And one of the most encouraging things I love to see is when they're like, I can't even go two days in a row without looking at this and engaging in it. And to say, no, 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 like, like you don't need to like 
you know, get yourself up into a frenzy. You don't need to have some emotional experience. You need to put just some bodily routines in place so that you just, even if it's just through, you know, relying on others, stay away from it for a week, stay away from it two weeks. And guys coming back and saying, I haven't looked at porn in three weeks and it's getting easier every night. And it's getting easier every night. That is true in every area of life. The longer we abstain, the quieter our body's cravings get. The more you indulge, what's the logic in that moment? If I give my body what it wants, it'll shut up. The louder your body gets. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the screw tape letters all the time. This devilish paradox of the more you feed your body as the center of your universe, the more it will force you to bow down to it as your God. And the more you tell your body no, the quieter it will get as you go. And that's why, as I said last night, what I would be most interested in for all of you as well as for me is what are you doing with your bodies every day? Not what do you believe, not what experiences are you having emotionally in your heart, not what do you intend with your will. What are you doing in response to what your body wants you to do? And again, it's good to have a body. We will have resurrected bodies one day. Turn to the back of that page. I'll make a couple of the last comments and then we'll close up and, and I'll leave us on an encouraging note. 1 Peter 2 is the second passage there. I want you to notice, and one of the things I hope that comes out of this weekend is both just in your own consciousness and experience, but also as you continue to search the scriptures in the future, that you'll be able to see that this is overwhelmingly the way the New Testament describes it, not just Paul in Romans, not just Paul here, every writer, every part of it. For instance, before, actually before I read 1 Peter 2 there, I would love for you to rethink about maybe one of the most famous statements in the New Testament and to think about how profoundly true it is because it's so familiar to us, we don't think about it. Jesus on the final night of his life is tempted to turn away from the way of the cross because of how hard it's gonna be. And he's abandoned by his friends. Stay and pray with me. I, I need your comfort. I need your presence. They abandon him. They fall asleep. Father, if, if, you, if this cup can pass from me, let it go. If this cup can pass from me, let it go. And Jesus sums up the conflict, both in his own life as well as in his disciples, by saying this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That is a great summary of the Christian life. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your flesh is as weak as every non-Christian's flesh is weak. And it will not be overcome until the resurrection from the dead. But unlike non-Christians, the resurrecting spirit of Jesus has been unleashed in your inner person and raised you from the dead and inaugurated a battle that was not there before. Another encouraging way to think about it is the battle in your life is proof of life because the battle wasn't there before as a Christian, at least not in the same way. All there was before was battles between should I do what my body wants here or should I do what my body wants there? That was the whole battle. <laughs> now there's the battle between should I say no to my body and yes to God and my neighbor or should I say yes to my body and no to God and my neighbor? And the presence of the Spirit is what has created that conflict in your life. And so sometimes step back from the conflict, be like, good, this is proof that I'm doing well. I got the Spirit, doing well. That's why the battle's there. And so in 1 Peter 2, Peter turns to the exhortation section in the second half of the letter, and he just sums it up like this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which are waging war against your soul. Do you hear it? That's it. The passions of your flesh, of your body, are waging war against your true self, your spirit, your soul. 
In James 4, two down, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you, Christians? Is it not this, that your passions are waging war within you? And and I wish I hadn't um, just copied and pasted the ESV there because I looked it up. It's not within you. It's literally, is it not this, that your passions are waging war within the members of your body? So here you are, siblings in Christ, but you're fighting with each other because your body Bodies have passions in them that cause you to turn on one another rather than love one another. This is how the New Testament identifies the battle. Very famously, last one, Galatians 5, right above that. I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, again, that's not, that's not your sinful nature. It's not some cosmic malevolent force out there outside of you. It's your body and its weakness and its fallenness. And it has desires that run the wrong direction. I tell you, the desires of your flesh, they are against the Spirit's desires. And the desires of the Spirit inside of you are against the desires of your flesh. And these two, the Spirit and the flesh, they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The Spirit absolutely wants your body for you to say no to it, and your body absolutely wants you to say no to the spirit within you. And every day, do you walk according to the flesh or do you walk according to the spirit is the question. Now, tonight we'll talk about what does that mean practically, um, but I think learning to articulate the issue like this is important. So let me end with, uh, with something, even though I'll bet a lot of you love C.S. Lewis and even read him a lot, I'll bet that maybe nobody has ever heard this part from C.S. Lewis. It's from a, just a short essay. And as I read it, here's a, here's a way to maybe encourage you to think about this in another way. If you're a humanities major, you know this, this you know, kind of Foucaultian deconstructionist way of talking about it. Here's how I would love you to think about not your bodies, but the desires of your bodies, or, or even the inordinate insistence that your body tells you that you need to obey its desires. I would love for you as Christians to have a hermeneutic of suspicion towards your bodies. You should have a hermeneutic of suspicion to what your body is telling you. Not so much in the sense of, oh, I want to eat, you know, Captain Crunch right now. Probably what I really want is to eat, you know, cornflakes. Not in that sense, but what your body is telling you, which is, you know what the most important thing in the universe is right now? Captain Crunch over there. Want you to have a hermeneutic of suspicion that that's not even close to the most important thing in the universe right now. And that there are maybe 17 other things that saying no to that for a while might take precedence, and to not just fall into the routine, which we all do in a fallen world, of just being slaves to everything that rises to the consciousness of our mind from our bodies. But to step back from and say, why do I want this? How does this fit into the other things God wants from me? How does this fit into what my neighbors need today? And to learn to begin sorting out when you say no, when you say yes, when you say wait, and to have a hermeneutic of suspicion towards your body. We live in a culture that teaches us to have a hermeneutic of suspicion towards other people, towards God, and to absolutely believe what our bodies tell us. And it's one of the reasons that we live in this present evil age. That's what the present evil age is like. And so how do you, again, because I was so absolutely negative towards our body today, in spite of those disclaimers at the beginning, how do we think about our body? In C.S. Lewis, Quoting Thomas Aquinas, among others, has this, I'll forward it to you guys if you want, or or give it to some of your leaders, you can get it there. But if you Google it, just Google C.S. Lewis, Brother Ass. 
Brother S. And this is what C.S. Lewis says, it's two paragraphs. Human beings have held three views of the body throughout history. The first view is that of the aesthetic pagans, kind of think ancient Greek philosophers, who understood the body to be the prison or the tomb of the soul. Here the body is nothing but awful. And of Christians like Fisher, to whom the body was a sack of dung, food for worms, filthy, shameful, a source of nothing but temptation to bad people and humiliation to good ones. On the other side of the spectrum, there are the, nego, the neo-pagans, the nudists, the sufferers from dark gods, and this is really where our culture is, to whom the body is glorious. We exalt the body. Think of ancient Greek culture where there are statues of naked bodies everywhere because the body is understood as so central and sacred, and, and really what your body wants is the central reality of the universe. And Lewis is just making the argument, body is bad, body is glorious, neither of those are the Christian view. What's the Christian view? Thirdly, we have the view which St. Francis and Thomas Aquinas both expressed by calling their body brother ass. All three views may, I'm not sure, be defensible, but give me St. Francis and St. Thomas for my money. Ass, donkey, ass is exquisitely right because no one in his senses can either revere or hate a donkey. It's useful, it's sturdy, but it's lazy, it's obstinate, it's patient, it's lovable, and it's an infuriating beast. One moment it deserves a stick and the next a carrot, both pathetically and absurdly beautiful, so are bodies. And I think that's a great way to sum it up. And I would love for you, again, I really would, I would love for you to love that you have a body. And I would love for you to be deeply frustrated with what your body currently is. And I would love for you to long for the resurrection of the body. Part of the Christian life, as I said last night, and we'll pray and then we'll sing this song of redirecting the various members of our body away from what we want in our selfishness towards God and our neighbor in worship and service but I do think, again, I've said it several times, there is nothing you can do, there's no formula you can know where you will be free from this conflict in this life. And so part of the Christian life is actually a deep acceptance of the not-yetness of your life. Is it a waiting for and even a groaning for what's coming? And one of the most helpful things you can do, I don't have it on my phone right now, maybe I'll read it tonight, Jonathan Edwards is someone that a lot of you have probably heard of. He was a Puritan in the early 1700s. And, uh, and when he was a young man, probably certainly much closer to your age than mine, he wrote a series of resolutions. If you ever get a chance to read these, some of them are really good, some of them are a little weird, but overall they're really interesting. And two of the resolutions that, that stick out to me more and more as I get older is, is, is they're both stating the same thing in slightly different ways. Is, is he picks up on the Romans a groaning, and he says, resolved, that every time I find rising up in me groaning, frustration, to direct it towards God in hope of what's coming in the future. And to say, I can't wait to get raised from the dead. I can't wait till I have a body that loves loving God and loving my neighbor. I can't wait till I have a body that I don't have to say no to every day. I can't wait till I have a body that doesn't need fasting but can just be trusted with feasting. 
I can't wait till that comes. And part of what you need to do is direct your frustration to the future and not either just give up in despair or say, if I just try hard enough, I'll overcome the frustration. Yes, there are things we can do. Everyone in this room, including me, by the grace and the power of God's spirit within you, is much more capable of saying no more regularly to your body than you think you are. But it'll always be hard. It'll always be a struggle. And part of what we do is groan in hope for what's coming in the future. Um, So let me pray for us, and then let's sing. Um, Father, thanks for these friends. And um, perhaps there is some fittingness in in having this talk be on a Saturday morning when probably hardly anybody slept as much as we needed to, Um, when there's just hunger, when there is angst about maybe going back to campus and all that this semester holds and all that's waiting, Um, when there's just maybe relational issues going on in families or in friendships or relationships, and there's so much within us, just even just tiredness, sleepiness, um, perhaps crankiness or headaches, uh, chronic health issues, and every one of us in this room, to one degree or another, is having to fight through that. It's having to to ignore and say no to what our body's instincts are encouraging us to focus on, and instead to be present to you, to be present to your word, to be present to our neighbors. And so I pray that as we sing this song, that we would, with intentionality and purpose, um, offer up the various members of our bodies, no longer to sin and unrighteousness to our own selfish pursuits, but instead to your kingdom, to our neighbors, to the world that you've created and love and have redeemed. And I pray that that would be a daily habit, um, not just in our minds, not just in our wills as a commitment, not just in our hearts as a, as a desire that we have, but in the routines and practices of our lives, we would both regularly be saying no to the instincts and passions of our desires, which wage war against your spirit, against your purposes in the world, and to say yes to your spirit's life-giving presence and to the needs of our neighbor. Um, and so I pray, help us to grow in these disciplines. I think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 saying, Every single day, I beat my body and I discipline it so that when the time comes, it will do what it needs to do rather than me doing what it wants me to do. Um, And so I pray that you would help us to be like that, like athletes, like musicians, but mostly like Christians, that we would participate in both the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that every day we would die to what our bodies and their selfishness incline us towards. And every day we would come alive to you in the spirit and to one another. And then as that process happens, day after day, that we would look more and more like Jesus. And and maybe finally, I just pray for, in the midst of, of some, definitely some hard words this morning, some discouraging reminders that this battle doesn't go away. I pray that for each person in this room, the hours, the days, and the weeks to come would really bring some momentum. A real reminder experientially that this is not as impossible as it sometimes feels, that there is a trajectory that the Spirit launches us on and that we can do this together. And so for anyone in this room who is discouraged over just a a part of their life where this just feels really impossible, I pray that as we slowly, very in unspectacular ways, um, just 
practice the practices of the body of Christ together, I pray that momentum would be built and that you would help us to be good at saying no to all that opposes your purposes and good at saying yes to your kingdom, to our neighbor, and to the true selves that you have already created us to be. Um, And so, Father, our members, our bodies, we came into this world with all of it turned in the wrong direction. And every single person in this room, including me, has spent a lot of hours, a lot of days, and honestly, a lot of years doing whatever our bodies wanted with our members and with our time and with our energy. And I pray that you would help us now in this time of worship and throughout the weekend and really throughout our lives to offer up every part of our bodies to you because you deserve that, you created our bodies, you've redeemed them and you will redeem them and you have called us to participate in your mission in the world, to love this world that you love as well. And we want our bodies to be involved and enlisted in that mission and not in our private fantasies and desires. Um, And so we pray, help us to be shaped by you and breathe your spirit upon us into these bodies that are still mortal and decaying. We love you, and we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Wow, that was interesting. A lot of really good thoughts there, especially on the flesh, flesh and body, and how we can glorify God with our bodies. Yeah, yeah, I thought the part about us always being frustrated and that being continual is is super real to hear, especially Mm. as young 21-year-olds hearing that, like, Part of me is like, oh, you know, someday I'll just solve it all. But hearing that reality is good. But thinking to the future talks three and four, they really help paint that frustration in a way better light. Yeah. Feeling the frustration, but then understanding the greater hope. Exactly. That is in the future. Exactly. And having the frustration fuel that as well. Yeah. If these ideas entice you, you got to listen to the third and fourth talk. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But this episode was brought to you by Christian Union at Penn. And it was recorded, produced, and edited for Just Be Records. Special thanks to Nick Noah for being with us today, even via recording. The views of the speakers and the hosts are not necessarily reflective of Christianity as a whole. So we thank you for listening, and we hope, we really do hope, you got the gospel today from this episode. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time for episode three. Episode three. Episode three. Coming up soon. Yeah.